Welcome to Making Footprints, Not Blueprints, a regular podcast about matters philosophical and religious. My name is Andrew James Brown, and despite being myself an atheistically inclined freethinker, I'm also the minister to the Unitarian Church in the city of Cambridge, UK. The title of this podcast is borrowed from the philosopher Herbert Fingeret, who, in his book, The Self in Transformation, offered us studies that were outcomes rather than realised objectives, which were offered to the reader as an encouragement to make intellectual footprints, not blueprints. This podcast tries to proceed in a similar fashion and takes seriously an insight of the poet A.R. Ammons, who felt that true human freedom only comes when we have understood that full scope always eludes our grasp, that there is no finality of vision, that we have perceived nothing completely, and that, therefore, and thankfully, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. Welcome to this week's New Walk. Jesus or Barabbas, Carl Schmitt and Little Red Riding Hood. A cautionary tale for 21st century liberals. Like many, perhaps most children, my world was powerfully shaped by many adults who were willing to mislead me into believing the world could always be divided into goodies and baddies. This was usually illustrated via the many myths of British exceptionalism, which centred upon the two world wars and the British Empire. Although one might have hoped otherwise, in my Sunday school Bible classes, the situation was no better, a fact that can be seen by considering this story found at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's chapter 27, verses 15 to 26. Here it is in David Bentley Hart's recent translation. Now, for the festival, it was the governor's custom to release to the crowd one prisoner, whomever they wished. And they had at that time a notable prisoner named Barabbas. When therefore they were assembled, Pilate said to them, Whom do you wish I should release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Anointed? For he knew that they had handed him over through malice. But as he sat upon the dais, his wife sent word to him, saying, Let there be nothing between you and that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds that they should ask for Barabbas and should destroy Jesus. And in reply the governor said to them, Which of the two do you wish that I should release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate says to them, What then should I do with Jesus, who is called the Anointed? They all say, Let him be crucified. But he said, Why? For what evil did he commit? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And Pilate, seeing that it is bootless, and that unrest is being produced instead, took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. You will see to it. And in reply all the people said, His blood be upon us and on our children. 
Then he released Barabbas to them. But having flogged Jesus, he handed him over so that he might be crucified. In the light of my opening remarks, it was inevitable that I, as a child, would instantly categorise Jesus as obviously being the goody and Barabbas as being the baddie. It should come as no surprise to learn, therefore, that I was very disturbed by the crowd's response to Pilate's question about whether Jesus or Barabbas should be released. Given it was obvious to me, why on earth was the crowd howling for the death of the goody and the release of the baddie? How could that have happened? My often very kind but dangerously naive Sunday school teachers answered my question by simply following Matthew's lead and blaming everything on the Jewish crowd, who, by extension, became baddies themselves. Since this was all in black and white before me, in a book I was told was the very word of God, How could I not be shocked and angry by the Jewish crowd's willful rejection of the good man Jesus and begin to harbour a deep prejudice against them? Remember too that in Sunday school I was also being taught that Jesus was God. And so this story was not just about killing a good man, shocking enough though that was, but a matter of deicide, nothing less than the murder of God. As far as crimes go, this was as bad as it could get. That such an idea could easily be planted in the mind of a small and impressionable child should disturb us deeply, not least of all because this is a story which every reputable modern New Testament scholar thinks is entirely fictional. It's an early example of what we would call fake news, and alternative facts. But, of course, the impact of this story was not simply confined to wee few children who attended a tiny rural English Sunday school in the 1970s, but one which has affected every child who has ever grown up in a Christian context. The shocking truth is that this story has played a central role in the creation of a Christian anti-Judaism, which has led directly to the deaths of millions upon millions of Jews over the last 2,000 years. As the New Testament scholar Robert Funk reminds us, There is no black deep enough to symbolise adequately the black mark this fiction has etched in Christian history. Unquote. Looking back over 40 years, I still shudder when I see how easily this evil fiction might have been etched into my own bones. However, I was lucky beyond measure that my father's grandparents had formed a close relationship with the Jewish family who lived next door to them, in East Barnet. And, when my dad and their son were both courting the girls who later became their wives, they began to go out together, especially to the pictures. It was the beginning of a lifelong friendship, and by the time my sister and I were born, and the children to our friends, each year around Christmas and Hanukkah time, our two families would meet up, and a jolly and festive time was had by all. I can see that this friendship with the Jewish family was one of the most important and influential experiences of my life, because it taught me early on to be acutely suspicious of any story that was attempting to split people into binary us-and-them categories, where neither twain could meet. 
this experience helped create in me a strong desire better to understand both how this anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic state of affairs could have come to be in the first place, and very importantly, how the mechanisms which made it possible might still be darkening and influencing our own times. As some of you know, this interest eventually blossomed into my later postgraduate study and then professional work in the field of Jewish-Christian and then Jewish-Christian-Muslim relations. In connection with this work, in the early 2000s, I found myself looking closely at the work of the conservative German jurist and political theorist Karl Schmitt. He was born in 1888 and died in 1985. And especially his 1922 book, Political Theology. Schmidt's thinking about questions concerning sovereignty, the effective wielding of political power and the state of exception has been and remains highly influential in modern political philosophical thought. However, for all the many valuable and powerful insights his work undeniably contains, his basic way of thinking about the world is deeply problematic and dark, not least of all because it is so tightly bound up with his close association and juridical political allegiance with Nazism. Indeed, he has at times been called the crown jurist of the Third Reich. Now, I bring Schmidt up in connection with the reading from Matthew because, like me, he was also very disturbed by the question, Christ or Barabbas, Jesus or Barabbas. As you've heard, for me, in the first instance, and in a moment I'm going to come to a darker second instance, but in the first instance, for me, it was a question which caused me to resist making the kind of immediate binary judgments Matthew and much of historic Christianity wanted me to make, i.e. for Jesus and against the Jews, and then to engage in what has become a lifelong dialogue with the Jewish tradition, which, in turn has given me a deeper and more nuanced understanding of how a complex shared world really works and, importantly, might work better. But for Schmidt, it was a question which, during the 1920s, 30s and 40s, encouraged him to begin a sustained attack not only on the Jews but also on liberalism, an attack which today in new right-wing, especially alt-right-wing hands, it is once again fully underway. In his political theology, in chapter 4, Schmidt revealed that he believed, quote, liberalism, with its contradictions and compromises, could not answer the question of Christ or Barabbas, except by making and accepting a proposal to adjourn or appoint a commission of investigation, unquote. Given this, he sneeringly concludes that, quote, The essence of liberalism is negotiation, a cautious half-measure, in the hope that the definitive dispute, the decisive bloody battle, can be transformed into a parliamentary debate and permit the decision to be suspended forever in an everlasting discussion. Unquote. As you can see, Schmidt did not like liberalism's commitment to the idea that ongoing, nuanced, informed debates and dialogues meant there never needed to be any final definitive dispute or, of course, more importantly, some decisive bloody battle. As far as Schmidt was concerned, 
This consensual dialogical non-violent way of proceeding was a clear indication of the profound loss of vision and orientation he thought liberalism had brought to his own time and culture. And he came to think that one surefire way of getting it back was to develop a politics in which people were forced to confront and immediately respond to black and white, either-or questions like that of Christ or Barabbas. It's important to be aware here that for Schmidt, the primary binary question underlying everything was always friend or enemy. As Charles Fry notes in a paper called Carl Schmidt's Concept of the Political, we see that Schmidt thought that the terms friend or enemy should be taken, quote, not as metaphors or symbols, not mixed and watered down by economic, moral and other ideas, nor are they to be taken psychologically as the expressions of private feelings and tendencies. Here we are not concerned with fictions and normatives, but with reality as it is, and the actual possibility of this distinction. Unquote. For Schmidt, therefore, the enemy is not just any old competitor or adversary in general. An enemy is, quote, in the last analysis a fighting human totality, but it is at least this. Whether it is fighting or not depends upon the actual circumstances, unquote. Schmidt then goes on to say that, quote, the concepts friend, enemy and battle have a real meaning. They obtain and retain this meaning especially through their reference to the real possibility of physical killing. Unquote. Now, this is a deeply disturbing political philosophy, is it not? And as I hope you can see clearly, it played a key role in the development of the fascist ideology promoted by the Nazis. But as a person deeply shaped by liberal democracy and anti-fascist movements, here's my personal second instance, where things start to get a bit confusing and complicated. This is because today I too feel the need to make a sustained critique of liberalism, one which accepts, in a nuanced way, a key insight of Schmidt's original critique. This has come about because 30-odd years on from the end of the Second World War, in the late 1970s, liberalism began to form an abusive relationship with an ideology which has become known as neoliberalism. That is to say, the free marketization and commodification of absolutely everything. As Robert Kuttner sums it up, quote, Neoliberalism's premise is that free markets can regulate themselves, that government is inherently incompetent, captive to special interests, and an intrusion on the efficiency of the market. That in distributive terms, market outcomes are basically deserved, and that redistribution creates perverse incentives by punishing the economy's winners and rewarding its losers. So government should get out of the market's way. Unquote. In today's post-Brexit, post-Trump, post-Truth and mid-pandemic situation, 
when contemporary British, and for that matter wider European and American culture, has clearly lost any vestige of its immediate post-war liberal democratic cosmopolitan vision, orientation and consensus, we can see clearly that neoliberalism has by now almost completely hollowed out the democratic institutions of liberalism and left them as mere shells, mere appearances of what they once were. More colloquially put, the ravenous wolf has eaten grandmother, put on her clothes, and, thanks to the new disguise, is now able to eat Little Red Riding Hood herself, i.e. us. This means that now, when our apparently liberal democratic political institutions appoint commissions of investigation and engage in parliamentary debate, these institutions are more and more being used to protect the market and not real, actual people. That is to say, the demos of any true liberal democracy. In consequence, key issues of political, economic and social justice and fairness are never properly resolved and are, as Schmidt pointed out 100 years ago, suspended forever in an everlasting discussion. This is why inquiries like those purportedly looking at the Grenfell Tower disaster, the financial crimes and scandals of 2008 and the Windrush scandal, as well as the inquiries that may or more likely may not be had over the procurement of millions of pieces of faulty PPE or the disaster of track and trace being privatised through and through, this is why they will never deliver justice and fairness to the demos, the people because these inquiries are designed only to deliver results deemed good for the market and those institutions and individuals who benefit directly from its profits. It's no wonder people are beginning to lose faith in liberalism and liberal democracy and are angrily beginning to insist upon radical change. Now, for someone like me on the liberal left end of the spectrum, the change required is a radical restoration of a genuine liberalism by the final ending of neoliberalism and a return of power to the demos and decisively away from the market. This would be to effect a radical reorientation around a civil, cosmopolitan, humanist vision of the world in which commissions of investigation and parliamentary debates can, when done properly, have a real chance to decide on what best to do about key issues concerning political, economic and social justice and fairness. To return to the story from Matthew, I think it is possible that such a change could help us appropriately to decide the Jesus or Barabbas question. But the decision would not be one based on the false friend-enemy binary loved by Schmidt, but something much more highly nuanced, looking perhaps something like this. After a fair trial or commission, Jesus will be released rather than Barabbas, if the evidence uh, allowed that, of course. Programmes would be initiated genuinely to reform the wider social situation that had helped make Barabbas the criminal he was. Attempts will be made to reform Barabbas rather than execute him. And finally, safeguards will be put in place to ensure that false evidence and fake news could not be used to 
mount a persecution against any group within our society, whether they be Jews or from any other community. That's the kind of thing Schmidt's critique makes me hopeful. But I fear that a revived, wholly unreformed, full-blown Schmittian philosophy of decisionism is once again threatening to become popular amongst the many illiberal political and religious individuals and groupings who are also attempting to reorientate both themselves and wider society, us, all of us. But for such people and groups, the change they want is one dependent upon creating an endless series of simple, fast-moving, false binary questions, which are deliberately intended simplistically to divide the world up into friend, enemy, indigenous, alien, Christian, non-Christian, left, right, black, white, in, out, leave, remain, and many more besides. All this is being done, of course, in the mistaken belief that these decisions, these binary decisions, will revive in people a belief that the nation is heading assuredly towards a restored political, religious and personal sense of identity and confidence. The current obsession with displaying the Union flag at every opportunity here in the United Kingdom is but one very frightening indication of this process underway. Very soon one will be identified as being either for the flag or against it. But to follow this route is to indulge in a very, very dangerous fantasy. Because the world always was, is and ever will be a complicated, non-binary place. And a failure to see and address this basic fact of existence will always lead us into the darkest places and times. To murder and mayhem. So, Jesus or Barabbas, Christ or Barabbas, how are you going to respond to this kind of question in our own age? And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. So, farewell for now, and remember, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. See you on the path. Thank you again for listening to the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and each new podcast will be delivered to your device as soon as it is released. Also, if you'd like to join the conversation, please feel free to comment on the blog, or come along to the occasional live online discussions which take place on Wednesday evenings at 7.30pm GMT. Anyone is invited to ask questions and make comments on the issues discussed in the podcast. You can find all the necessary links in the episode notes. We look forward to talking with you then.